Hello and welcome to episode 124 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and my guest today is Dr. Crystal Cal Biruk, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Oberlin College in Ohio. She is the author of a new book entitled Cooking Data, Culture and Politics in an African Research World, published by Duke University Press. Her other published work has appeared in a number of outlets, including Medical Anthropology Quarterly, Journal of Modern African Studies, Critical Public Health, and Critical African Studies. Cal's research and teaching interests are at the intersection of medical anthropology, critical data studies, and queer studies. Her second book project draws on long-term ethnographic work with an LGBT rights NGO in Malawi to capture the relations and transactions that constitute diverse political identity and economic projects that play out within aid geographies in the global south. This new project melds insights from queer theory and critical data studies to show how numbers and quantification became unlikely resources in queer projects on the ground. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having me. bit about yourself, your personal background, your professional background, and how you got to Malawi in the late 2000s. Sure. Uh, so I was an undergraduate student at Bryn Mawr College in just outside of Philadelphia, uh, and I majored in anthropology. I'm pretty much a one-trick pony in that regard. I've done anthropology for quite a while. Uh, I came to anthropology like many undergraduates. I first was interested in attending medical school, even went so far as to take the MCAT, and then realized just during my taking of a medical anthropology class that it was really sort of what I was interested in was epidemics, but from the perspective of the fault lines they open uh, in in societies where they transpire. Uh, in particular, I kind of got interested in the AIDS epidemic and what was playing out uh, on the African continent. I had the opportunity to uh, go for the first time to Kenya um, as an undergraduate uh, under the direction of my, my supervisor at the time. And uh, it was there that I kind of began to study NGOs and the ways in which um, they were affecting and intersecting sort of of local identities, projects, and so on on the ground. And from Kenya, uh, I actually was presenting a paper at a conference and uh, had a demographer approach me who was quite interested in the paper I was presenting and invited me to work as a graduate student on one of the demographic projects I ended up studying in Malawi many years later. So I'd actually been uh, twice with the demographers to, to Malawi, and I worked in the capacity there um, as doing various things, data and typing up interviews, transcribing things, uh, grunt work of sorts. And I also helped oversee a large-scale kind of inventory of cultural practices, uh, things like what would be called widow inheritance, various kinds of initiation ceremonies, traditional forms of dancing, and, and so on. Um, and the investigators on that project were interested in looking at how those 
what they've been termed as harmful cultural practices, often without evidence to indicate that, how those intersected uh, HIV risk um, on the ground. And in the process of this, you know, I, of course, as an anthropologist, grew interested in how the pathologization of culture might, uh, you know, distract attention from structural factors that um, might be more important to understanding the spread of HIV in, in rural contexts in particular. But uh, in, in the process of this, I, I spent a lot of time amid uh, both American demographers, Malawian demographers, American researchers, and Malawian researchers who are collaborating on a wide variety of projects on the ground. And I, of course, as an anthropologist, often eavesdropped, and I would overhear lots of arguments uh, between collaborators about where resources should be spent or where research should be done or the kinds of questions that research should be asking. And I realized that maybe what was more interesting uh, a dissertation project for me might be thinking about the politics of research itself and thinking of research worlds themselves as cultural contexts or kinds of contact zones following Mary Louise Pratt. So um, how do collaborations across geographic and monetary asymmetries play out on the ground? And of course, also, I, I kind of grew interested in this regard in looking um, at areas that others hadn't looked at regarding mm. the politics of knowledge production, and in particular, thinking not just about these kind of world-renowned researchers, or even just about their sort of uh, Malawian collaborators collaborators on the ground, that is other kinds of researchers from Malawi, or just the target populations of these projects, but the people in between, so young Malawian field workers who are responsible for collecting all of the data that I'm discussing. And so your new book, Cooking Data, is a fascinating exploration of the social life of numbers. Focusing on uh, these health and development projects in Malawi, the book describes in fine detail how information collected in research surveys, like the ones you describe, becomes kind of scientific data uh, through what you say is an unfolding series of transactions, experiences, and relations. So why is it important for demographers, or even policymakers and other stakeholders in Africa, to more fully appreciate the type of data, quantitative data that they're producing? Yeah, thanks for the question. So I think of my book as having two audiences, and one indeed is demographers and others who administer surveys uh, in, in the African context and globally for that matter, um, and the other is a more general audience. And in, the, in regards to the first audience, I think demographers actually are in some sense quite aware of the social lives of numbers, um, although I think the way that demographers think about the social lives of numbers has more to do with ascertaining whether those numbers meet their sort of standardized criteria for being high quality. So whether the numbers um, are accurate, whether they're valid, whether there are errors in the data set, and, and so on. And there's lots of checks and balances that demographers institute to kind of, um, you know, sort of quarantine the, the potential bad spoiling effects that certain kinds of practices might have. And the sort of most renowned of these practices, most mythologized, I would say, um, is in fact the title of my book, which is Cooking Data. And uh, demographers had a lot of sort of fear about African research assistance, and this dates to the colonial period as well. You know, African research assistants kind of fabricating or just making up numbers willy 
willy-nilly and recording them onto the survey form to save time or to avoid awkward situations, um, or just because they were bored with administering the survey or asking the questions. But I think what I try to do in the book is, is not just think about um, or try to show demographers that their data is, is bad or, um, or fabricated. In fact, um, as I show in the book, the data collected by these projects is actually quite good by demographic standards. And it's the kind of data set that were I looking to ask questions that numbers could help me with in the Malawian context, I would turn to, to these data sets in particular. But I think what demographers often don't see or think about is what numbers do besides count and measure. So how numbers themselves and data themselves are material artifacts and objects that have these tangible lives that weave through social worlds and also produce new kinds of people, new kinds of relations and transactions and um, demands and expectations. And so I think some of what my book does is, is show that. So for example, when research projects come again and again, as in the case of longitudinal surveys, um, it produces a kind of expectation among the respondents in the sample that perhaps they'll see some future benefit from being asked questions questions, for example, or perhaps, you know, they can expect that if they're suffering from an illness, that medicine might come in the future. Um, and this kind of contests or contrasts with the dominant view of research, um, you know, among demographers in public health and, and so on, that people should uh, willingly supply information for the sake of a collective public good or, you know, toward sort of unknown future benefit on a larger scale or population scale. And for the other audience, the more general audience, I think the book is kind of a nudge for all of us to think a bit more critically about numbers and data that we encounter every single day. And I think this is particularly important amid the rise of the kind of epiphenomena of big data and also the, the sort of um, immense trust that we place in data and the, the mm -hmm. respect we have for just, you know, high volumes of data. And I think whether we're talking about big data, small data, data that are increasingly used to uh, measure and surveil higher education institutions, all of these kinds of data do have a tangibility that if we take pause um, to try to understand the relations and transactions through which they come about, we might understand better the the kind of limitations um, or, you know, understand better what data do in the meantime besides count and measure or miscount and, and mis mismeasure. I really learned a lot from your book and from your uh, papers and your, and your articles, and it reminded me of all this um, recent literature, not just in anthropology but also in history, that looks at African intermediaries from colonial civil servants, for instance, there's that wonderful edited volume by Benjamin Lawrence, uh, Emily Osborne, and Richard Roberts, to scientific research assistants, uh, Nancy Jacobs, uh, Leslie and Andrew Bank, for instance, talking about the importance of African field workers in assisting these white uh, scientists. Uh, one of the most important features, then, of your book is that it really places Malawian field workers, um, be they data entry clerks uh, or field supervisors or what have you, at the center of the story. So can you tell our listeners some of the ways in which Malawians shape the production of survey data on the projects that you were involved with, particularly on HIV-AIDS, and in this in a country that has been really uh, ravaged by the HIV epidemic, where the uh, HIV positive rate is somewhere around 12% of the population. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so today it's closer to 9%, but at the time of the research I was doing, it was um, around 10 or 11%, depending, of course, you know, we're, we're talking critically about statistics, so depending on the source we're using uh, to ascertain that number. Sure, so I do see, I think one of my biggest interests in the book is in sort of uh, drawing attention to what what Foucault would call minor actors, people who, you know, are, are crucial to processes of knowledge production and and projects of knowing, but often overlooked. And and the move that I make in the book follows um, in the the wonderful footsteps of Lynn Shoemaker, especially. I found her book, Africanizing Anthropology, very inspiring in in coming up with this project. And, you know, looking at, um, you know, and scholars in science studies um, and also, you know, history and anthropology of science have um, really begun to, to look at, you know, actors other than heroic kind of northern scientists. And I think, you know, my interest in the book, and I devote three chapters uh, in total to kind of thinking about African data collectors or Malawian data collectors in particular. And, you know, my reason for this is that even as data collectors in these projects are framed as potential liabilities in um, in, the, in the way that they are threats to high quality data, um, there's a kind of suspicion that if these research assistants are not trained properly or deviate from the scripts of how to properly collect data or fill out a survey, then, you know, they'll they'll mess up or ruin or spoil the data. There's also suspicion that um, they, they may just completely concoct numbers, again, dating to the colonial period. And these are, of course, racialized suspicions as well. And I think, you know, what I saw being on the sort of front lines of, of research projects myself, I was, I was out there as kind of an honorary field worker. Um, I was checking surveys alongside uh, these, these field workers. Um, I became part of this, you know, sort of life course or assembly line as the demographers imagined it of data. And what I noticed that it it was actually, um, paradoxically, it was these field workers that were crucial to the sort of uh, implementation of the standards, the epistemic standards for good data that researchers were so invested in. So it was their negotiations and their innovations and ad hoc sort of, you know, uh, yeah, negotiations, you know, on, on the front lines of research that made good data come to fruition. So what kind of things did they do? Yeah, so what they would do... Or, <laughs> So. You present them with a form, right, with the boxes right, and right, right, right. categories to check off, and uh, then what happens? Right. So, so uh, of course, the survey, the questionnaire itself is, is sort of, um, we could call it, you know, to play on the metaphor of the book, we could call it a recipe for data collection. And you can, you know, train and standardize and harmonize the behaviors at the level of how to fill out, you know, a particular box, how to write leading zeros and not write leading zeros. But in the field, right, it's, it's the, the sort of ability of these field workers to, to negotiate, to convince respondents that they should participate in research, for example, to translate, um, not just language very importantly so, but to sort of act as stewards of the project, to make themselves trustworthy, to engage in sort of minor transactions that help ensure that, um, help ensure the category of sample purity. That is, you know, having a sample that is the right people, that's large enough to make um, certain kinds of numerical claims from. And, you know, so when things happen within the context of everyday fieldwork, so say, for example,
example, uh, a minibus associated with the project runs over the cooking pot of um, someone living in, in a sample area, the field workers would have to make sort of or impro improvise decisions that weren't necessarily standardized um, from top down. They would make decisions about whether, and they usually did, to compensate the person whose pot they ran over. And that had very little to do with whether or not that person was actually in the sample and more to do with creating and elongating relationships in this sort of broader community, community in which not everyone was in the sample or not everyone was a potential respondent, but nonetheless, one in which it was important to sort of elongate, to affirm and establish relations. And, you know, they also did this by contributing to local economies. So buying, um, for example, local chickens or buying tea from the same tea stand every day. So in that way, creating a, a presence that wasn't just extractive or viewed as coming and going, but, but trying as best as possible to create rapport in broader ways than just in, you know, a single encounter between an interviewee and an interviewer. So, you know, I try to really bring out some of the sort of um, unstated or um, obscured forms of local knowledge and the way in which these field workers um, really add value to the kinds of data that's, that's produced and, you know, recast them not as liabilities, but, you know, as real assets in uh, the production of this kind of uh, quantitative health data. And another dimension of this relationship, and you talk about this in the book, and you also mentioned in your talk earlier at the um, Michigan State African Studies Center, is the relationship between the Marawian field workers and the rural mm -hmm. folks, mm -hmm. right? Because there's a dynamic there that's mm -hmm. really interesting and that's often overlooked. Mm -hmm. there, is, there, is a, there is a performance of sorts uh, mm -hmm. at play. Can you say a little more about, for example, how women field workers would approach mm -hmm. um, the survey process mm -hmm. in a distant, you know, southern Malawian village? Sure. So one thing is, I, I think in the popular imaginary of, of global health or of global research uh, of this sort, there's kind of a reification of, of local knowledge as something that people native to a ge geographic area, uh, you know, somehow inherently possess. And what I try to do in the book is, is show that while it's true that there are certain kinds of accumulated local expertise and knowledge that all of these field workers possess, uh, there's also a way in which just you know being part of this research world and uh, being part of research culture also entrains them and professionalizes them into certain kind of roles that depend on them sort of performing boundaries between different kinds of spaces, between what's called the field of data collection and the office of we might say number crunching, and also of course you know these projects. Are, are not just sort of, you know, scientific, uh, you know, fly in and collect data type of endeavors, but they also are spaces where people are working out their subjectivities, working out um, their proper ways that they might relate to one another, and um, building and elongating, right, new kinds of social networks, um, new ways of being in the world. And so I try to show that in the book by showing how part of becoming a research assistant or part of becoming a data collector is indeed performing a kind of dis distance uh, from the, the people to be interviewed uh, in the field. And often, you know, one seemingly minor um, tactic that, that comes into play here are, are just modes of dress or what we might call kind of a field style. And so I would often witness female field workers, for example, wrapping themselves up with chitenje, um, wearing a chitenje or a wrap uh, around their trousers or around their dress and putting that on as we headed to the field for the day. And so there was this kind 
kind of ritualized emphasis between the field and the office as separate places. Um, and this, this mirrored a lot of the sort of um, discourse and training sessions where field workers were taught by supervisors, by Malawian supervisors, that they were different from, that they were higher status than, or that they were more professional than, than the people they would be interviewing. And so these dynamics allowed for um, the production of kind of a professional identity. So some of the field workers actually were part of the same areas. They were, they were hired from the same areas where they were interviewing. And so being a part of this research world and a research project, carrying a clipboard, wearing a project t-shirt or badge, all of these things played into um, the performance of a kind of status or distance from people that they may well know, acquaintances or, or family members, for example. There's also a lot of lying involved, and uh, there's a lot of opportunism. There's mm-hmm. uh, there's uh, the role of imposters, mm-hmm. and and the way that you bring that out is really interesting because an outsider, mm-hmm. um, while they may have thought about those possibilities, is really ill-equipped. Mm-hmm. to identify them mm-hmm. and, and to deal with them, whereas the local researchers are <laughs> much better positioned. There's a mm-hmm. funny story you tell about, the, I think it's one of the women in the homestead uh, who pretends to be the wife mm-hmm. of somebody who is, mm-hmm. who is uh, being surveyed, and it's mm-hmm. not until much later that it's discovered that she was just making it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- these are the kinds of things that make the data messy and mm-hmm. that again, uh, speaks to the, what you call the vernacular probabilities and how they, they really challenge this notion of the purity of data. Another thing that you talk about is the gift exchanges mm-hmm. that take place in the field during this survey process and the data collecting. And you, you had in your talk the bar of soap, for instance, uh, as a symbol of this gift exchange. And you said that you know, a lot of local Malawians, particularly in the rural areas, didn't really see this as much as a gift, although they accepted it, but really they saw it more as an underpayment for the very valuable labor and information that they were sharing with the researchers. Can you say a little bit more about uh, the ethical conundrums that this gift exchange raised? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So during my time in Malawi in 2007 and 2008, the projects that I spent time with um, did give a standardized gift, and that was two bars of soap, one bar of sunlight and one bar of life buoy. And this was sort of a a larger, it was a decision that was um, nested in a larger infrastructure. So actually the Malawian Ethics Board kind of determined that this particular gift was playing on words, a very clean gift in the sense that uh, it ensured the integrity of the data in the sense of protecting the the ethics, uh, Protecting research subjects. A gift of soap, for example, is not money. It doesn't incentivize you to participate, but allows you to make an informed decision. It's a token of thanks. And, and this kind of boundary work that, you know, bounded off the soap as a gift and not as compensation or monetary payment was important in, in sort of ensuring that uh, standards of informed consent were met. And so the gift had a very, very interesting life history um, in the field, which I very much enjoyed following. Um, as I said, uh, most all Malawians graciously, in the sample, graciously accepted the gift, 
but uh, there was a lot of conversation and complaint around the gift. And this came uh, precisely from the fact that Malawi is a site that uh, many have referred to as over-researched or um, a site that has experienced what people call research fatigue. There's, you know, a sort of a very high density of, of NGOs and, and research projects working in Malawi, which does make it a bit different than, than other contexts. And this, of course, produces a, a history whereby Malawians have participated in many different research projects historically. And in deciding whether to participate in the research projects I was spending time with, they would often inventory their past experiences um, and inventory whether they had benefited or not from the research experiences they'd had prior. And so the soap figured heavily into these discussions. Um, and the soap uh, was widely deemed to be an inadequate gift. And people, in fact, would refer to participating in research as a job or say that they were engaged in labor that deserved payment. Um, they also, in many cases, despite the fact that there were actually very few refusals uh, in, in the samples, um, there was also a discourse that the researchers were bloodsuckers. And these kinds of rumors, which people like Louise White have looked at in great detail um, are kind of a trans-historical genre through which people kind of critique illegitimate forms of accumulation or critique uh, institutions or people who are, are thought to be taking things that maybe aren't theirs. And so, you know, here uh, the soap became a medium through which people said, well, we are not being compensated enough. People are getting more from us than they should be. And so researchers then were accused of sucking blood. And so the gift became kind of an idiom. The soap became something that was not quite enough to to repay what people were surrendering, even as it was it was graciously um, accepted. And so, you know, I think this raises questions. The the gift itself sort of very neatly ties up the research transaction and and that moment of exchange of information for soap and vice versa. But it doesn't. It's an ethical gift in that regard. But it doesn't address sort of the the long history through which. Malawians and and people in all other in many other places as well have in in their own view perhaps been exploited. Um, it doesn't address the fact that many Malawians critiqued the random sampling strategies of these projects, wondered why their household wasn't participating, um, and as you mentioned earlier, some people saw the gift as uh, the gift of soap as incentive enough to actually pose as someone else in the sample or pretend to be someone who lived in a household uh, and was in the sample that that they were not. And this was often discovered later or sometimes in the course uh, course of the interview, but the soap really figured figured heavily into people's critiques of, of research. And of course, that wasn't, um, I think that in thinking about some of these questions about ethics, it's important to think more broadly about histories of extraction uh, and how those mm-hmm. figure into how people evaluate whether or not they should participate in research or any other project. So I think um, there I'm trying to broaden the idea of ethics beyond just prescriptive ethics or even beyond as well sort of situated or field ethics, which try to take culture into account, but also looking at like structural histories that um, necessarily contextualize any singular transaction. And and I think this sort of contests a lot of times researchers will say, well, there was therapeutic misconception. People didn't participate or were hesitant to participate because they're they're not getting, you know, medical treatment or they were 
disappointed. They didn't get what they wanted. And I think that's framed as a misunderstanding. But I think what I try to do in this chapter in the book is show that people are actually very intelligently inventorying and making critical decisions based on past experience um, about whether or not or, or about whether to reluctantly participate in research. And, you know, the field workers, again, had a, a large role here in sort of negotiating between desires of the researchers to have all of the people respond um, and their reluctance of the respondents. And they were able usually to kind of work there as brokers and in many cases convince the, the individuals to participate. It's a great way by spotlighting the agency uh, of local people you know, to show that they're much more than just victims of, of mm-hmm. research. And you've taken this um, concern with research ethics uh, beyond the book in a recent uh, journal article in Critical Public Health. Uh, you raised a really interesting point talking about NGO projects in Malawi uh, looking at HIV prevention, education, and support. And, and you say that these are ethical projects at their core, to reduce homophobia and improve health care, but at the same time, they unexpectedly might subject the participants to more harm. Mm -hmm. So how should researchers and practitioners in Africa ethically deal with this fact, as you put it, that, quote, even as community engagement builds social networks, it also generates what you call an economy of harms? Mm I think in that article, which which I co-authored with my colleague Gift Trapens, um, who's the executive director of the Center for Development of People based in Lilongwe in Malawi, I've been doing uh, some work with him for almost a decade now, um, helping out with some advocacy projects. And we're, we're hoping to, at some point, write a larger ethnographic history of LGBT activism in Malawi. So I think what I'm talking about with this economy of harms, again, touches on some of the same questions as, as the SOAP example does. And, you know, I think that when we think about ethics, uh, we're so culturally rooted in an individualist notion that the sort of the rights um, need of the individual need to be protected. And of course, the gold standard of measuring that or not is informed consent. The arbiter of of ethics is is typically informed consent, um, which presumes an agentive individual who can choose whether or not to participate in research. And I think we need to sort of expand beyond that. So as I show in that article, there's a significant push for for data on key populations. um, And these are including men who have sex with men, other sexual minorities, sex workers, and so on. The Global Fund in 2015 gave Malawi one of the largest grants ever, but it was contingent on the fact that men who have sex with men were streamlined into national policy, national um, AIDS prevention infrastructure, and so on. And so this uh, resulted in a kind of push for data from key populations, from men who have sex with men. And so there's this sort of emphasis on recruiting those individuals into research projects and into interventions and, and so on. And that recruitment, of course, is done again by another kind of intermediary. And these are young LGBT-identified peer educators who have worked closely with this particular NGO um, for quite a while now. And I think when we broaden the lens of, of what ethics are and what they mean, if we look outside the simple transaction between a researcher and a research participant, or between a researcher and someone being recruited to participate in research, you know, those people on the front lines face a lot of challenges in mm-hmm. going about this work in what has, you know, been called uh, a homophobic 
homophobic context. So many of these individuals actually find what they call a job in doing some of this work. And I use the term economy of harms because, you know, I think participating in this sort of NGO, uh, in these kinds of NGO-led projects, um, which often have to do with educating, giving uh, safe sex materials like condoms and lubricants, and of course, recruiting other MSM into these projects, um, they, they find simultaneously benefits in the form of sort of contingent employment, though it's not called that because they're referred to as volunteers and they're given small stipends, but they also subject themselves to immense risks. So in, you know, having to be, for example, associated with a project that's, you know, widely known as a gay project nationally, they risk being outed, they risk just sort of becoming visible as associated with this project, they risk even blackmail by people who are either potential or, or actual MSM who might, you know, report them to the police and things like this. And so the provision of things like cell phones and, and you know, even vehicles to ensure that these folks are able to get around safely. And also just sort of a bit more attentiveness to the kinds of harms and potential risks that might arise in the course of these kinds of projects that exceed the simple focus on a research participant and a researcher and exceed the individual, but sort of place um, the work of, you know, the infrastructures of doing research or doing any kind of project in their specific cultural context. So I think learning right from from people on the ground and, and trusting people on the ground to be able to say what they need, uh, and and of course also you know thinking again about working in a country like Malawi where there's significant incentive to get involved with projects that might pay you a stipend even if um, you're simultaneously you know as someone who's LGBT identified putting yourself um, at some risk to get involved in that particular livelihood strategy. And you're going to start a, a new project, or you've already started a new project that builds on these concerns with ethics and statistics or metrics in African aid economies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So that project will probably take form as a book, and it will be kind of, yes, an, an ethnographic history of LGBT rights and activism in Malawi. But uh, I think the central questions actually stem very much from my first book um, and have to do with, indeed, the, the social lives of data. So what I'll try to do in that book is trace how um, the shifting fates of this LGBT rights organization in Malawi from early on, there were many accusations from government, politicians, etc., that gays or men who have sex with men did didn't exist in Malawi, that was an un-African or satanic practice. And until recently, and up to recently, we now see that there's a lot of public discourse around MSM in Malawi. And this, again, coming from the push and pull of aid economies and the ways in which these circuits of resource distribution have now come to privilege key populations. And so I think what I'm interested in is thinking about the massive amounts of paperwork that, that come about in this context. So uh, the NGO having so many donors at one time um, is subject to a whole cadre of paperwork and surveilling technologies. So meeting certain indicators, proving in a sort of transparent and accountable way in line with the rise of what Marilyn Strathern would call audit culture, that you've used monies correctly and effectively. And so I'm, I'm kind of uh, interested in tracing uh, metrics and indicators um, and, you know, looking at like 
the work they do on the ground, thinking about how aid economies have taken shape and become, uh, indeed, I would argue in Malawi especially, you know, a major source of employment in, in a context where rates of formal employment are, are quite low. And I think, you know, anthropologists have tended to dismiss NGOs by now as sort of depoliticizing technologies and things that sort of sap radical politics on the ground and handmaidens to the state and all of this. Um, many of many of those critiques are, of course, warranted. But I also think that even in these constrained spaces, people really do manage to forge more livable lives and do really creative things in a very constrained context that's sort of dominated by metrics, indicators, and other technologies of surveillance. And so, yeah, the book, I think, wants to trace the production of knowledge about uh, LGBT populations in Malawi and, and also thinking through how these various infrastructures of knowledge production intersect economies um, and queer projects on the ground. Well, we look forward to the new project in the coming years. Uh, thank you, Calberic, uh, for speaking with uh, Africa Past and Present. Thank you so much, Peter. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.